Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, retired NYPD Sergeant Bill Cannon, a 27-year veteran of the NYPD. Welcome to the show tonight, everyone. You know, finally, this the Idaho case, and we referred to uh, this case like so many do, the Idaho Four, but I like to mention their names. Uh, Kaylee Gonzalez, Madison Mogan, Zana Canodal, and Ethan Chapin. And today was one of the first court appearances by Brian Koberger in a while. And this case is sort of moving at a snail's pace, but I think it's a bit understandable when we know what uh, the stakes involved here. And there's a picture of Brian Koberger. Brian Koberger appeared in court today, but the judge would not set a trial date or make a decision on a motion by the defense for a change of venue. So a change of venue is a big uh, thing for the defense. The defense does not believe that Brian Koberger can get a fair trial uh, in Latah County. So they're trying to get it moved. Koberger returned to court as uh, Judge John Judge, uh, heard arguments for trial scheduling and the defense's request for a change of venue, which we already discussed. And the judge is listening carefully to both sides because it's a very complicated case and exacerbated by the fact that this is a death penalty case. So the judge wants to make sure that he does everything 100% 100% correctly. Uh, prosecutors had previously requested a trial date for this June after the end of the spring semester, but the defense wants more time to prepare. Judge Judge set a May 14th hearing to address a motion for the change in venue. A trial date will be set after it's determined if the trial will be moved. So there is a potential that this the request of venue may be granted. But right now, we don't know if, in fact, he will grant that change of venue. That's one of the things he's got away because they're not going to pick a jury and then change venue. So they would rather have the venue and pick a jury close or in the county uh, of where the case will be tried so that the jury can can come from the same location. According to Ann Taylor Koberger's attorney, a fair and impartial jury cannot be found in Latah County owing to the extensive inflammatory pretrial publicity, allegations made about Mr. Koberger to the public by media that will be inadmissible at his trial, the small size of the community, the salacious nature of the alleged crimes, and the severity of the charges Mr. Koberger faces. Ann Taylor wrote that in a January court filing. Um, Taylor, uh, Ann Taylor previously asked the court, and again today in, in today's court appearance, she asked for a delay until June 2025. And you know something, there's a distinct possibility. I would never have believed it, but that could happen. Uh, Ann Taylor Brian Koberger's lead public defender earlier this month asked Judge John Judge of Idaho's 2nd Judicial District in Latah County to schedule a hearing no earlier than the end of April to hear arguments on the potential move 
a fair and impartial jury cannot be found again in Lake Tar County. Brian Koberger, 29, a former criminal justice student at Washington State University nearby Pullman, Washington, is charged with four counts of murder in the deaths of Ethan Chapin, Sana Canoral, Madison Mogan, and Kaylee Gonsalves at a rental home near the university campus in Moscow, Idaho last year, actually November 13th, 2022. Prosecutors intend to seek the death penalty if he's convicted. A surviving housemate, uh, this is also according to Fox 10 News, a surviving housemate witnessed a masked man walk out the back door after overhearing sounds of a struggle minutes into the attack, but police were not called until after around noon the next day. It was more than six weeks before police captured a suspect, which is not a long time. They arrested, as we know, Coburg at his parents' home in Pennsylvania's Pocono Mountains after a lengthy investigation that included help from the FBI and police across multiple states. Latar County Prosecutor Bill Thompson told Judge last week that he opposes a change of venue, stating that Latar County first deserved the chance to see the jury because the crime occurred there. Moving the trial elsewhere would have no material effect on potential jurors' familiarity with the case, he said, because that has already gained national and international notoriety. It's not Moscow, it's not Latar County, it's everywhere, Thompson said. So I don't think a change of venue is going to solve any of these problems. Moscow is the seat of Lake County and home to about half of its population of roughly 40,000, not including students at the school. Much of the case has been conducted behind closed doors with numerous filings made under steel and restrictive gag order. Judge entered not guilty pleas on Coburg's behalf at his arraignment in May. He could face the death penalty if convicted. The trial was initially expected to last six weeks, but lawyers now expected to go on for 12 to 15. Judge has not yet decided on a, a starting date for this trial. So those were just some of the things that were discussed today in court. And of course, they, they spoke about evidence. They spoke about especially investigative genetic genealogy. They spoke about uh, the discovery material, some of which they have yet to receive. So folks, we're gonna go over some of this stuff here, but first I want you to hold on to your seats because you're about to enter true crime, real crime of a police perspective. And of course you're gonna get it off the cuff. So you're entering the police off the cuff zone. There has to be some common sense. Yes, sir, they have the car stopped in town at the ranch, Michael Biden. We still don't know who pulled the trigger. So in court today, they also discussed expert witnesses for both sides of the case, because obviously 
the prosecution is going to have to have expert witnesses. And in addition, so will the defense, because the defense will want to thwart the evidence put forth by the prosecution. So the some of the arguments discussed by the defense today, and really it wasn't in the that much of an argument uh, state, and I'll play some of today's court appearance. I'm not going to play the whole thing. Obviously, it was an hour and 18 minutes long. But the fact that the defense experts should get access to all of the investigative genetic genealogy, including the family tree that was put together by the FBI and no doubt tested by a private lab. And I believe the lab was probably Othram, O-T-H-R-A-M, which is in Texas and in one of the premier labs in the country that does that type of work, investigative genetic genealogy, which took a big part in, in, this, uh, in this case. And again, the, the DNA on the knife sheath is a huge, huge piece of evidence, a piece of evidence that most of us believe, I mean, besides other things that point to Brian Koberger, that is one of the pieces of evidence I think that will convince a jury, well, how did his DNA get on that knife sheath? And again, the defense will come up with ways, but that to most witnesses, I think most jurors will say, wow, I, I don't think that there's a, another way that the knife sheath that contained, undoubtedly contained the murder weapon that was left in the bed alongside or underneath the body of Madison Mogan had the DNA of the killer on it. And I think that makes sense. I'm gonna play a little list from today from the Today Show uh, talking about today's court appearance. Set to appear back in court today, when and where his trial will ultimately take place, still up in the air. The judge thus far hesitant to set a trial date, but that could all change today. While Koberger's defense team argues he can't get a fair trial unless it's moved out of town. It was here in this close-knit community that four University of Idaho students, Madison Mogan, Kaylee Gonzalez, Zana Carnodal, and Ethan Chapin, were found stabbed to death at home in November of 2022. Facing four counts of first-degree murder, a judge entered a plea of not guilty on Koberger's behalf. Defense motions to get the charges thrown out, consuming the better part of the last year, all swinging in the prosecution's favor. But the judge has held off on setting a date for trial. As my heart goes out to the victims. I, I can't even imagine the, the pain, the grief, um, because you can't really go forward with your life is hanging over your head. Prosecutors had asked for it to begin this summer when schools are out, but the defense said that was too soon. Your Honor, summer of 2024, it's impossible for us to do it. Meanwhile, Koberger's defense lawyers filing a motion earlier this month to move the case out of Moscow, citing the extensive inflammatory pretrial publicity. Prosecutors calling that premature. This case has national, if not international, attention. It's not Moscow, it's not Latah County, it's everywhere. I don't think that a change of venue is going to solve any of these problems. On the eve of last month's hearing, the Gonzalez family told NBC News that pushing the trial another year 
would be agonizing. My life is put on hold. My life is, um, you know, I in limbo. It's torment. It tears me up. I can't sleep at night. And I just can't imagine going that much longer. So a lot of families are really mm -hmm. anxious to mm -hmm. see this get underway. So talk about the change of venue hearing. Uh, the so folks, the, the change of venue, uh, what, is that, um, what does that actually mean? It means they would have to take it to another county, obviously, in Idaho. I want to take a little poll in the chat right now. If you believe that the this case, the Idaho quadruple, you know, the murders of Kaylee Gonzalez, Madison Mogan, Ethan Chapin, and Zana Canodal should stay in Latah County where it occurred, put a one in the chat. If you think the only way for Brian Koberger to get a fair trial is to change the venue of this case, put a two in the chat. I'd just be interested to see polling-wise what 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 we feel about this. Uh, I see, I'm seeing a lot of ones. I'm seeing a lot of ones. I see one, two so far. Um, so, you know, a change of venue, it, it, it really, um, I mean, it, it gets a jury, there's a jury from not from Latah County. Now, are the people in Latah County going to be prejudiced? And is there anyone from another county in Idaho that doesn't know about this case that that would be you know predisposed to just say that you know they live in a bubble they never heard about this case before i think pretty much everyone knows about this case so uh can we get any jurors uh that um don't know about this case that aren't predisposed to believe innocence or guilt I think that's the real issue is can anyone that doesn't know about this or knows about this give Brian Koberger a fair trial? And that is that is one of the issues here is can he get a fair trial um, in this situation? You know, uh, that's that's what we have to ask. Can he get a fair trial? And that's the issue. And that would be why the defense would want to move this case out of Latah County. And that has, of course, not been decided yet. The judge today didn't decide anything. He didn't make any judgments. Let's use that word, cliche. Judge John Judge is a perfect name for a judge, right? Judge John Judge um, didn't make any decisions yet. So this case is moving along extremely uh extremely slowly you know i want to play this a little bit from law and crime how the police first zeroed in on brian koberger and that is one of the issues charged with the murders of those four university of idaho students nearly seven weeks after they were found stabbed to death in their house near campus we know koberger drove a white hyundai elantra the police said was seen at the house on King Road. And the lead detective said Koberger's DNA was found on the snap of the K-Bar knife sheath left next to Maddie Mogan's body. But how did police get to him? This is what Brian Koberger's lawyer, Ann Taylor, said last month during a hearing. And the clear picture that I'm concerned about is the state's pathway of how Brian Koberger comes to their attention and is identified. 
I've read that PC affidavit over and over and over again, and I'm not sure. Now, in a filing this week, prosecutors essentially said the defense should already know the answer to that question. They wrote, this information can be obtained from the TUI letter from the FBI to the state dated November 28th, 2023. So what's this TUI letter and what does it say? Bobby Chacon is a retired FBI agent and also a lawyer. Bobby, what is a TUI letter? I think the best way people could think about a TUI letter, it's kind of like a subpoena. Um, it is a request for documents or witnesses, usually a witness, of a, of a government agency in cases where that agency isn't a party to the proceeding. So if, if they're a party, then you go through the, the, the subpoena route. But it's very similar to a subpoena. It's a request for documents and or a witness to be provided in the case. So the FBI, according to the prosecution, sends this TUI letter which should answer this question about how Brian Koberger became the suspect in this murder case on November 28th. That's uh, 15 days after the homicide. So I know I'm asking you to speculate a little bit, but what on earth could that letter have said and why is the FBI sending it to the prosecution? I, I think what's, what's actually, and I read the filing, I think there's a little bit of a, uh, a mistake on the prosecution that they say the the FBI TUI letter. I think what they mean is the response, the FBI's response to the TUI letter. I believe what happened is here, the prosecution probably sent a TUI letter to the FBI and the FBI responded to that. The FBI would not send out a TUI letter. That's not the purpose of it. You wouldn't do that. But they responded to a TUI letter that was probably sent to them by the prosecution because the prosecution was probably trying to line up all of its information that it may need later down the case. Again, it's speculation, like you said, but they wanted to know how Brian Kohlberger was initially identified, initially put on their radar. And the FBI had something to do with that. We know through genealogy and things like that. We know the DNA. So folks, uh, this is a Bobby Chacon, great guy. Uh, he's been on my show a couple of times. He's a renowned talking head. Uh, he was an FBI agent, I believe for 25 or 26 years. He's got a law degree. He's a Long Island boy, Hofstra University. His dad and his brother were both NYPD sergeants. He's got a soft spot in his heart for the NYPD. That's one when I, I have his home, his cell phone number. When I want him to come on the show, I just give him a call. Uh, but he's very knowledgeable. And now the thing is, when the defense and Taylor wants to know you, how did they come upon Brian Koberger? And there was different pieces of evidence, right? And it's, you know, what came first, the chicken or the egg? You know, that's the question that I have. And we know that there was lots of evidence. There was evidence, not just, of course, what is the most valuable piece of evidence was the touch DNA on the knife sheath that was left in the bed. However, however, how about digital evidence, which will come up so huge in this case and how about video evidence? Video, and again, we can't identify that white Hyundai Elantra. Uh, but we can't specifically identify it because we don't have the plate number, right? But we put they put together, uh, you know, different videos showing that car in different um, different places, and also coming. Well, there's the Hyundai Elantra right there with Brian Koberger and his father inside it. However, 
more importantly, they, they show it on video pulling into the parking uh, spaces in and around 1122 King Road, the house that you see on the screen right now. So those are big pieces of evidence too. In addition, search, you know, we don't even know, we're not privy to all of the evidence that they recovered, both from the home in Pennsylvania, the garbage pails in Pennsylvania, as we recall, remember when the FBI had him under surveillance and he was uh, throwing stuff in his neighbor's garbage pail while he was wearing surgical gloves. And I think this was early in the morning, like four or five in the morning. Uh, I think we all do that, right? We all throw our garbage in our neighbor's garbage pail at four or five in the morning. Uh, cell phone data, GPS data from that cell phone. And you know, you always hear, if you listen to me on this show, you hear me say, connect the dots, you know, connect the evidentiary dots. And I think that's really what, you know, the prosecution will surely, uh, will, will surely lay out a case that is so succinct and so detailed. And, and the defense, of course, is going to attack the evidence. And the biggest piece of evidence they, of course, have to attack is the DNA on the night sheet. Let's go back to law and crime with Bobby Chacon and Anjanette Levy right now. And so they probably were trying to gather in the in the early stages of the investigation all the information that they felt they might need later on. Um, and part of that was how the FBI assisted Idaho in identifying this individual. So that was going to be my next question, because we, we know they found Brian Koberger's DNA, a single source male, male DNA profile on the snap of that K-bar knife sheath that was found next to and kind of underneath Maddie Mogan's body, um, horrifically. And, you know, it wasn't in CODIS. It wasn't in the FBI database of known felons. So then they had to do some work. So the FBI goes to work with Othram and they start building the trees and do, 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 do. They do what they do. And that's how, in my mind, they would have figured out who the suspect was. So was it possibly about the genetic genealogy information in this TUI letter? Obviously asking you to speculate again. Yeah, I think you're right. I think uh, in my opinion, that's what it was about. It was about not only specifically to this case, but in general, how this system works, how you did what you did. I think that's what they were trying to gather. So they have those answers down the road as it moved forward. But I think you're right. And again, I think it's important in the timeline of things to not say you know, they found Brian Koberger's DNA on that night sheet. What they found was DNA on the night sheet. And then they did that whole thing that you just explained, that whole process, because it is a process and it is, and, and you have to go back. And what, let's remember what genealogy does. It doesn't give us a suspect. It gives us a grouping of suspects, right? And then we have to go out and do further investigation on the individuals that are in that pool of suspects. So it narrows it down. And then we look at each individual and then you go and try to get that individual's DNA surreptitiously as they did here and then match it directly. So See, I love that word. I use that word surreptitiously all the time. And as we know, they first got the DNA from the garbage in Pennsylvania, pulled up some bottles and that DNA came back to uh, Brian Koberger's father. And then voila, this is now 
now they start doing that investigative genetic genealogy and they have a good idea and they somehow got his DNA, right? And initially, as Bobby Chacon said, surreptitiously, and then later on, they would take a DNA swab that would go right into that to be compared as an exemplar against the DNA on the knife sheath. And investigative genetic genealogy uh, entails building a family tree. So one of the legal problems with that is that the defense wants to see the methodology and how the FBI arrived at Koberger through building this genetic genealogical tree. And that is something that the prosecution really doesn't, and a judge has to decide because it's exposing a lot of people in that family tree going back many, many years that have nothing to do with this. So their privacy is violated because they're part of this investigation. So this is interesting, and this is what this is why a judge's job can be very difficult when they have to make these these tough decisions. So there's there's a couple of steps in the process. So probably on November 28th, 15 days after the homicides, they know they've got this unknown male DNA profile. The feds are involved in this. The FBI is involved because the thing is just a monster of a case happening in this little town in Idaho with the Idaho State Police involved. They know they've got some work to do. They're maybe getting a pool of suspects from the genetic genealogy work that's done. And then the next big date in this case um, is November 29th because they also know that a white Hyundai Elantra, according to the police, was also seen uh, at the crime scene. And... The FBI was involved in identifying that vehicle. And then, you know, they had asked, unbeknownst to all of us at the time, they'd asked law enforcement to be on the lookout for this white Hyundai Elantra. We have two Washington State University police officers putting a query in on November 29th, the day after this letter. And they see, oh, this Brian Koberger, uh, this student drives a white Hyundai Elantra. I kind of gathered from reading all the documents that that kind of information might have gotten passed along, but put into a pile of other information for a time. Um, So, you know, then there are a number of days that pass on December 7th, like eight days later. That is when the cops release the the images of the Hyundai Elantra and they're like, we need information about this. So to me, Bobby, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think that they made the connection with Koberger and the Elantra back then on November 29th, if they're asking for information from the public about it on December 7th. Well, I think you're right. And I think that people have to understand that, you know, it's, it's, it's easy for us to look at an investigation after the fact and see moving in a linear direction, but oftentimes it's not, especially that early on in investigation. So I think what was happening is several things were happening at once. They were doing a couple of different things. The pool over here with the DNA is starting to develop. The video is starting to be enhanced. And and you have different teams within the investigation doing different things. And then ultimately, it all gets married up together. But I think in those early days, you had a couple of different things going on. I think the prosecution sent that two-way letter to the FBI saying, you know, tell us exactly how you're doing this because we're the ones that are going to be responsible for prosecuting this as a murder case in our state. And we want to make sure that everything you're doing is going to marry up with what you know, is proper in our our laws in, in the state and, and things like that. So they wanted to get that information from the FBI 
what is your investigative genealogy process? How does that work? Even if it's not you know, specific to this case, how are you doing it? And the prosecutors want to be comfortable with that. And at the same time, like you said, another team is working on that DNA off that knife sheath. Another team is working on the video of that Elantra and enhancing it. And so all of these things, and then down the road, it gets married up. But I think initially, I think what we're seeing now is several things happening at one time, but they're all put together later on. Yeah. And it's important to note, too, when they first asked for the information about the Hyundai, they were saying 2011 to 2013. Then later they look back and the FBI analyst says, well, it could have been 2011 to 2016. Koberger drove a 2015. Uh, so let's move on to our next significant date. December 7th, as I said, they asked the public for help. Here is a white Hyundai Elantra. This is what it looks like. Please call us if you know of white Hyundai Elantras in the area, et cetera. And then like a week later or so, Brian Koberger and his dad are driving cross country. They get pulled over twice in Indiana within, you know, several minutes of each other of these two traffic stops. The FBI says, look, we were not monitoring him at that time. Um, so he was not under surveillance. These were kind of interdiction, drugs, traffic stops, because he was obviously a bad driver. The guy was always getting pulled over. Um, so, you know, even then it seems like all those pieces had not yet quite come together, um, even on that date. So would you agree with that? Yeah, I, I agree. I think exactly what we're seeing. We're seeing in parts of the investigation put together and parts not yet. But ultimately, we see them put together, but we just don't know exactly when, because sometimes that's not even documented. You're just talking about it in within the case uh, team itself and saying this and that. And then and then you go back and document. But, um, yeah, I think what we were doing is we're seeing the evolution of, of the investigation. Um, again, I I sometimes have, you know, I have differing thoughts on those stops on whether the, they were coordinated. I don't think they were coordinated, I think, as the FBI said. I just think it's, you know, it's just really suspiciously coincidental um, uh, that two were close together. I think one was probably orchestrated, possibly not by the FBI, but um, uh, but one probably wasn't. Uh, the second one probably wasn't. Um, but but yeah, I think that I think multiple things were happening. It's always easier to look back and to impugn the investigation with all the knowledge they had, you know, ultimately or tying them together. Ultimately, even if they had them, they hadn't connected those dots yet. We'll get back to so it's so, so interesting that uh, you know Bobby Chacon, who has worked, uh, he actually worked with the um, Brooklyn, I think it was Brooklyn South homicide. Like it's, I'm probably wrong, it's probably Brooklyn North, but he worked with them when he was with the FBI, so he has a lot of experience uh, working uh, homicide cases. And he's so correct when he says, you know, homicide cases they're not linear, that you don't just do things, uh, in, in in a certain order you you do a lot of things at once and things in different investigative uh steps are done by different people and that's why during an investigation especially as large as this it's important for all investigators to speak to each other and not just uh personally but in in large meetings with all the investigators involved and the meetings run by an investigative boss who allows all investigators to talk and present what they learned in a closed door meeting. And that's how you proceed with the investigation. You can't secret squirrel things away and not share information 
that's a way that a homicide doesn't get solved. So when Bobby Chacon says, oh, it's not linear, what he's talking about, things don't happen in some chronological order. Now it all makes sense. Oh, and this happened that time. But you know something? That's not how an investigation works. And I think he explained it very well. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff. And if you like true crime, real crime from a police perspective, then you're in the right place. And if you're not subscribed to us, go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, ring that bell, and share us with your friends and your family. And also, we if you want to contribute to us, we have a Patreon with three different levels. And we also have a YouTube channel membership with count them five different levels. And you can share us uh, with your, again, friends, family. But we appreciate all our subscribers, all of our uh, our friends, our family, our fans, as we call you guys. And that's what enables us to keep this show going. So I just want to thank everyone for doing that. Um, so so what does that bring us to uh, to today with, with, with this case? Um, well, obviously, the court case, the court case today discussed a lot of different things. Uh, a lot of it, again, we spoke earlier on this, the change of venue, that the defense feels that they cannot get a, uh, a fair trial in Latar County because the jury pool is poisoned, prejudiced against Brian Koberger. Uh, this, after all, is a death penalty case. So if he does get convicted, he is facing the death penalty because the prosecution decided to go for that. And, and there's a picture, an earlier picture of Brian Koberger. And of course, to the right is that Hyundai Elantra that we've been alluding to. I always like this picture here. And I think this is one of the clearest pictures. If you look at Brian Koberger's hand in this picture, his right wrist, up his wrist, to the right side of his wrist appears to be a large cut. It seems to be at least two and a half to three inches long. Uh, we all surmised that when he uh, did the, if, if you believe he did these attacks, he did these murders, that he must have cut himself. But then, then the issue gets to be, well, if he cut himself, where's his blood in the crime scene, right? So could he have cut himself and been wearing gloves that blood was caught inside the gloves? I mean, it's a possibility. But when you look at that picture, that specific picture, and I have shown this picture numerous times and people have said, oh, that's not a cut. I, I think it looks like a cut, really does. And uh, that's pretty, pretty damn clear um, body-worn video that a still was made from by that uh, that state trooper that that pulled him over, so that's pretty amazing. I'm going to play a little bit of the, of the court uh, just to see what what they were discussing today in, in, in court. And again, you know, it gets a little. I'm not going to play that much of it. It's long winded. It gets a little boring. But uh, let, let's see what they were talking about today in court. Making contact with certain families that may have no bearing whatsoever on the case unless it's in mitigation or something like that. Now, the DNA issues, especially, I mean, maybe especially in the IgG, 
it has to have some relevance if there's some um, context, okay, that connects to the case itself. That's how I'm looking at it. I might be wrong, but so you can respond. Okay. All right. <clears throat> We're talking about a couple of different things. With our request for clarification, I was talking specifically about people that are already known to our team that we may be in contact with, friends, direct family, parents, sisters, aunts and uncles. And those may interrupt you just for one sure. second, but that has no re relevance to the IgG information that you were, you were given. There's no, those are people we already knew before. Okay. Um, so I want clarification that I can continue to talk to the Coburger family. Yes. I, I want to make sure I'm not running afoul of court order. And again, I, I want to be appropriate. I want to be really clear who I'm asking for to have access to the IGGs. It's not our mitigation investigator. That our mitigation investigator, I think the court heard me talk about going three generations back to do her work. That's required under, under the ABN. I'm not talking about her. She wouldn't have access to this. I'm talking about our criminal investigators dealing with the innocence space for Brian. Those are the people that I think should have access to the same materials under the same protective order. They're not doing the generations back. None of the IgG materials would be used for that part of the mitigation work. She's doing her own thing, her mitigation investigator, uh, looking backwards as she's supposed to at the things she needs to. That's not the IgG materials. So putting aside that investigator and thinking of only our criminal investigators that are going to be dealing with our innocence phase of the case. Those are the investigators that I'd like to have access. They're the investigators that participate in the meeting with our experts. They're the investigators that help us put the timeline together to understand different things that were happening in the case before Brian's name was ever spoken by anybody. And we're missing that big piece about why was Brian's name spoken and how. And how does that connect to the other pieces that we have? That's what our criminal investigators are going to do. They are not looking at IgG materials, if allowed, to do any of the mitigation. Folks, just so you know, uh, IgG is investigative genetic genealogy. I just put it in the chat. Someone asked that question. And I spoke before. What it is is the FBI builds a family tree based on the DNA, and it goes to probably a private lab, Othram Labs, and they build um, the tree that, of course, led to uh, Brian Koberger. But as Bobby Chacon said before, is that you just don't get a tree and then uh, that's going to give you the answer. You have to do other investigative work and come up with a potential suspect, and that'll narrow that uh, genealogical tree down. That's separate and apart. So I, I wanna make sure that that's really clear. Also, when we're talking about whether something is relevant or not, I think that we're thinking of the standard for information to come out in court. That's not what I'm talking about. The court found that the IgG information was material under the discovery rules to the defense and allowed us to have access to some. It's for that same purpose and under that same rule that we're asking the court to allow our investigators to have access to the same materials. 
what what she's basically what uh, Ann Taylor is asking is that as part of the discovery is that the investigators for the defense get to see how the FBI developed this genealogical family tree and came up with a match to Brian Koberger, i.e. the touch DNA that was left on the knife sheath. So that's what Ann Taylor is asking right now. And part of the problem with a lot of that, of course, is, is privacy and privacy for the persons that are totally innocent that are in that family tree going back I don't know how many years it goes back, but their names, they don't want their names to get out there. And we all know that early on in this case, a gag order was slapped on this case so that people uh, couldn't talk to the press about it. So this is even doubly important now when there's like sort of secret information, secret evidence or evidence that the um that the prosecution would like to keep to themselves, although they give it because of discovery rules, of course, they give it to the to the defense. Whether or not any of this is something that comes into the court uh, or into trial, that's a question to be answered later. I can see how I think this is why I'm really happy to have our experts involved, but I can see if a way that there may be emotion practice that happens that relates to this i'm not there yet that, but that's that's where i i'm because because i i if if you have these experts okay go through this i've been through all the this information and so if you can go you know using your experts and your experts kind of can tell me and state that uh, you need to investigate particular people, okay, that were involved in this, then we can have a hearing about it. But I'm not, I'm not quite ready to be convinced that without getting this information uh, from the experts that um, we're going to find some pathway, okay, that's going to be helpful. To Mr. Co Coburn. If I mean, it's a courtroom, so if that's what you want to do, we can. I'm, I'm here. We waited a while to come to this hearing. I'm asking for it all with a protective order. If we do it the other way, we can do it. It's just everything takes time, and if that's the preference, that's okay. The court knows and would order us to not reach out to any of the people in this material and we wouldn't do any of that if we have a motion to file that references any of the content of the materials that would be filed under seal this these are sealed items if there was a hearing i would guess the court would have a chance to look at the filings before granting me a hearing and hear from the state and that would be sealed I'm not asking our investigators have access to run out and start interviewing people. I'm asking they have access to not be shut out of conversations considering what this means and how our client came to the attention of law enforcement and to plug things into the timeline of us trying to understand how we got from November 13th to December 29th. 
that that's it, not to go out and try to talk to people. I can just see that there's a potential motion to be filed, but that wouldn't be contacting anybody at all. That would be a motion well, for the courts. That's reassuring. I mean, that that's one of the concerns. I mean, you know, pulling a lot of other people into the case that, uh, you know, are completely innocent and don't even have any connection uh, to the situation. So let me go back to Luke Jennings. Do you have any response to any of this? No, Your Honor, I'll just reiterate that uh, Ms. Taylor keeps discussing the their ability to just understand the timeline. Again, you're very familiar with the materials. Understanding the timeline and how we got from November 13th to December 29th, it's all laid out in that letter. Um, none of the other materials are going to answer their questions regarding the timeline. So that's what they be given access to that, named investigators to that letter. Thank you. You may rem remember a few hearings uh, in the past that the state from the very beginning said they, they, there was no, that they had no uh, no, I don't know how, how to even, it, it wasn't, when I asked them in the hearing, you know, did you use the IDG, uh, any of the information at the IDG to get the warrant, uh, to get uh, Mr. Koberger's uh, DNA, that was not part of it. So in terms of the Time frame. Don't know that it's that complicated uh, because a lot of what happened in the time in the time frame happened before that. Now, that's up to you um, to get to dig into that, obviously. But there was a lot of information in the letter too, just their sequence of uh, using the IGG uh, at all. So we're gonna have to sort this out, obviously, but. Um, so folks, obviously, I know this gets a little complicated, gets a little convoluted, but the defense wants to know exactly, again, uh, to simplify it, how they came up and when they came up with the name Brian Koberger. And they want, you know, that's for purposes, of course, of creating doubt in this case. You know, uh, if they were going to totally rely, like, for example, how did you obtain his DNA? Was it from, uh, well, now you have DNA on the knife sheath. And how does that get married up to um Brian Koberger's DNA or his family's DNA. And remember the word we always use, the, our favorite word, uh, surreptitiously. It was surreptitiously obtained. And that's um that's one of the that's one of the things that uh they remember they got some bottles out of their garbage in Pennsylvania. And through that they were able to match the DNA uh, of his father to the DNA on the knife sheath. That was initially the DNA identification. And then, of course, uh, 
they surreptitiously obtained Brian Koberger's, and then of course they got a exemplar once he was arrested on December 29th. So the defense, of course, is asking for all this information because it really streamlines and makes their job much easier if they can send their investigators to check on these things that the FBI and, and, and other state police, Moscow police, all these different investigators did, they're going to try to look for mistakes, things that they can poke holes in, things that they can create doubt in, because after all, that is the job of the defense. I'm going to play just a little bit more of this hearing uh, from a different part. It all and understand it and get ready for witnesses. Too. If the court makes that deadline, know that mitigation is not going to be done by then. But if the court makes that discovery deadline and then we follow that with our motion practice and then our deadlines for expert disclosures and whatever's going to come from that and our mitigation, we should be in good shape by June of 2025 to try the case. Wow. Wow. Right. Did, did we all get that? She requested that because of all of this stuff that they have to investigate all the expert witnesses they have to come, they have to uh, supply all their investigators that they'll need till June 2025 to be ready for this case. Wow. Right. This happened. November 13th, 2022. So they're asking for all of that time to June 2025. And I don't know if the, well, to tell you the truth, I think the judge is going to grant it, but I think, you know, he's going to have a couple of hearings on it. But because this is a death penalty case, this judge wants to err on the side of being as fair as possible. And the prosecution, they wanted to try this case this June, right? They're ready. They're ready to go. They're raring to go. The defense needs much more time. So who's, and, and how about the families in this case? Uh, the, the families don't want this to go on forever. Uh, and we specifically always mention the uh, Gonzalez family. They were the most vocal is a picture of Steve Gonzalez and his daughter Kaylee on the screen right now. Um, here's a pic picture of Christy Gonzalez and Steve Gonzalez. And of course, the parents of Kaylee, they're, they're freaking out that this could last that long, that you've heard Christy Gonzalez say, my life is on hold. It's on hold until this case proceeds. How many, think of the, the agony they're being dragged to. And then some of you folks will say, well, the only way Brian Koberger can get a fair trial is if the judge grants as much time to investigate this as the defense is requesting. And that's the other school of thought. But the, the big school of thought that we talk about is those two people on the screen right now, Christy and Steve Gonzalez, and whose lives have been on hold because their daughter, Kaylee, who's a picture on the screen right now, is, of course, one of the, the Moscow Four. Uh, Kaylee Gonzalez, Madison Morgan, Zayna Canodal, and Ethan Chapin. And uh, we always want to mention their names. And I, I don't like to refer to them as the Idaho Four, but uh, 
that's how it's become and so and we all understand that this they are who this case is about kelly gonzalez madison mogan zana canoto and ethan chapin and we mention their families all the time when we talk about this case and it's easy to get so involved in the nuts and bolts that you forget about what this is really about if we have that discovery come up i think that's a great idea Thank you, Mr. Thompson. Trying to figure out where to start first. Yes, discovery is fast. Yes, there have been things that uh, Mr. Koberger has asked for that we've inquired, and we were initially told, no, you don't have that. And then uh, we have gone back at the prompting of defense saying, you sure? I mean, it ought to be there. And for example, x-rays for the autopsy. Well, we just got those. The first came in with thumbnails. In today's discovery, Ms. Taylor's gonna have the full size, which we were able to obtain when we saw, he gave us thumbnails. These are useless, give us, give us the real thing. Uh, and through the coroner's office, we, we were able to finally achieve that. According to Ms. Jennings, we are better than 95% complete on discovery. Uh, so we're getting close. There are some things that are outstanding. There are some issues with uh, what information is actually available to us. We have given Mr. Koberger everything that we have that we haven't asked for a protective order on or had some sort of dispute about. And we've given it to them and the, frankly, in the order it's come in, uh, instead of waiting to try to package it together and give it to them in a different format, just because they want it as quickly as possible. And I appreciate that. And we're gonna continue doing that. Um, we do, it's going to benefit to have deadlines for everybody to have to work for here. Uh, I don't think just setting a deadline for state's discovery does anything other, uh, productive other than that initial stage. So if we're going to set discovery deadlines, we need a uh, state's discovery deadline. We need a defense discovery deadline within a reasonable time after that and a reasonable time before trial, because we're going to then have to investigate whatever the defense tells us <clears throat> they might be using. And then, of course, um, an opportunity after we can see what the defense is um, is proposing or is disclosing uh, to rebut that in some fashion and give notice of that. So that package of three days are important. Um, Pre-trial motion on the death penalty, I think that's important. We need deadlines so we just get it done and over with. And both teams can prioritize, based on the timelines, what needs to be done when. I don't know the first thing about what's going on with defenses mitigation. Um, apparently, it's been going on for a while. It sounds like it's going to be massive. Um, that's something that we just don't have any insight to. Um, we, we think that our proposals are realistic. We appreciate the fact that something could happen where it turns out that they aren't realistic, that something happens that we have to revisit. And I think we need to be prepared to do that. Um, I think the last thing that I, I want to touch on real quick is um, the proposal to set a, a state's discovery deadline and set hearings on the change of venue is inadequate. As we've indicated, change of venue under the law, that motion is premature. We need to have be able to give the court the benefit of what impacts publicity, for example, is having on our actual jury pool 
We know there's publicity. Everybody can agree. There's been massive publicity, uh, publicity, not in just in Waytaw County, but I see more about it in Boise or hear about it from other parts of the state and what we're seeing locally. And so the massive publicity, that's a red herring, realistically. There's publicity everywhere about this. The issue is whether the publicity and the nature of this case is such that we cannot pick a fair and impartial jury in this county. And of course we know that just being aware of publicity about a case does not disqualify a jury. This is Bill Thompson, the district attorney of Olathe County who will be prosecuting this case along with several assistants. Someone in the chat before said, well, why doesn't Ann Taylor have us? She does have assistance. There's several attorneys that are working for the defense, not just Ann Taylor. Just wanted to put that out there. There has to be a showing that that publicity or whatever has impacted the juror to the point where that juror cannot sit in this box as a fair and impartial juror and make a decision based only on the evidence presented in this courtroom. That's the issue that your honor is going to have to decide on the change of venue question. And you can't do that based on a bunch of affidavits from experts who say, judge, there's been a lot of publicity. That doesn't cut it. So I think just having a state's discovery deadline and trying to prematurely move forward with motion for change of venue is not the right approach. We think that the, out, uh, the proposals that we've made are reasonable understanding this Taylor has concerns about whether she's going to be able to meet those. And I think there are enough stages in there that if that becomes a reality, there's the opportunity for us to discuss that. Like everybody here, we only want to do this once. We do not want to invite error that we can avoid. Thank you, sir. Yeah, thank you, Mr. Thompson. Can I, you, oh, you, yes, I think you said maybe you're like 98%. On uh, probably a little bit more than 95%. It's what Ms. Jennings just told me. Okay. So if it's 95%, I mean, is it possible that it could be done before the end of August? It's possible, and we are going to wait till the end of August to do anything. We will continue to disclose information as we receive it. I mean, that, that's not fair to the defense. That's not fair to anybody. Just sit on stuff and dump it. So we are we are hopeful that it'll be finished by then, but we don't want to have to face a deadline that we think there's a chance could uh, be difficult to meet. And that's why we propose this, the early September date, which would be essentially six months from now. September 6th, that's what you're saying? Yes, sir. Ms. Taylor, you said that would be fantastic. That would be fantastic, Your Honor. And um, Your Honor can give us a January 2025 deadline if the court wants to set a discovery deadline for us, too. Uh, expert disclosures, I think, maybe would take a little bit longer, maybe February 2025. The court gives us a deadline for expert disclosures. I, I want to comment on the motion for venue change. Your Honor, because I filed a motion and the court doesn't have affidavits or the briefing, to understand how we're going to approach this doesn't make it untimely. I'm fully aware that the massive amount of media coverage by itself isn't all of it. But I'm also aware that this case has had more media coverage than most other cases, and it continues. So there is an impact of that. There are other considerations besides just the massive amount of media 
and an impact on potential jurors. That's what we're going to talk about. I, I think it's timely. I think it's appropriate to set a change of venue motion. I think it is what makes the most sense for the court to make that determination and set a trial date from there. If the court sets one here and has to change it later, a lot of things have gone into play to get that trial date set here to get the courtroom reserved and a lot of people ruined. Waiting until the court has heard the information, more than affidavits saying there's mass amount of media coverage, the court can make that determination. If the court agrees to change venue at that time, then it makes a lot more sense to just set that trial from there. I would think by the end of, or by May, when we can have a hearing, I would think I would have a better handle maybe on the process the state's going through now with its discovery. I will continue to make the utmost effort to get all the way through every piece of what I have now and continue to follow up with questions to the state so that we can try to have this discovery issue put aside. Once we have the discovery completed, I think that we're going to have a lot better idea of what the motion practice is going to look like and how long that's going to take. And, and it'll be a more realistic way to disclose experts to one another with the materials that's required under Idaho Rule of Evidence 702. I, I think that's a better way to go, even though you might not set a trial date today, because at least you'll set one that's really informed that maybe everybody can rely on. Thank you. So, but, you know, these are some of the issues that they discussed today. And obviously, uh, Judge John Judge here, and he is the most appropriate name for a judge, is not going to make the decisions uh, about uh, change of venue, is not going to make all of the discovery decisions today. Uh, and also about when the dates of the um, of when this trial will proceed. And you heard Ann Taylor say she wants this to go to start in June 2025 because of the massive amount of work that is necessary, both in discovery and her expert witnesses sort of investigating what the uh, the prosecution has done in this case, what the FBI has done in this case, what uh, all of the investigators have done in this case. Um, so that's um, that's why they're asking for all this um, amount of time. And nothing about this case is going to move quickly because it is, in fact, a death penalty case. Folks, if you're looking for a great attorney in the New York metropolitan area, then Joe Murray is your man. Joe's a retired NYPD police officer and a fantastic defense attorney. You can reach Joe on his cell at 718-514-3855. Email him at joe at jmurray-law.com. Go on his website, jmurray-law.com. Not only is Joe a fantastic defense attorney, but he's a huge supporter of the Police Off the Cuff podcast. I always show his picture here. Joe's a former PBA boxer, a tough guy, and an excellent, excellent defense attorney. And by the way, a huge supporter of the Police Off the Cuff podcast. So we appreciate everything he has done for us. Uh, I'm going to play a little of this from Law and Crime, and uh, we'll, we'll start to... Um... In this case, 
So let's talk about what happens next. Well, we now know that Kohlberger will be back in Judge John Judge's courtroom, like I said, on February 28th. And Judge Judge asked the attorneys to be prepared to discuss a number of issues. Dates for the criminal trial, the motion for a change of venue, and deadlines for pretrial motions, discovery, and expert disclosures. But let's actually focus on that trial date for a minute because that is the issue that a lot of us are talking about and a lot of us want to know. So what we do know is that during a hearing last month, the defense team once again argued that the grand jury's indictment of Brian Koberger is invalid because the jurors, they say, were provided the wrong instruction on the standard of proof. They made a very novel argument that a grand jury indictment requires proof beyond a reasonable doubt as the standard of proof, not just a finding of probable cause, as has always been the standard in Idaho and other states. It was a very interesting argument, but we've discussed it before here on Sidebar. But Judge Judge had previously denied the motions to have the indictment thrown out. Well, now, Latak County prosecutors said that they were worried that delaying the trial until after a higher court could take a look at the defense's argument would be harmful. I don't want to lose sight of the fact of the seriousness of this case. We are talking about a quadruple homicide under Idaho's law. Uh, not only are those who, who were killed victims, but every single one of their immediate family members is a victim. And in this state, in Idaho, our victims have a constitutional right to a timely resolution of the litigation. Uh, we are already quite a ways out. And the idea that we would hit the pause button and take power away from this court because there is a interesting issue for the Idaho Supreme Court to address uh, is not something that this court or any court should tolerate. It, it's time for a trial, Your Honor. But the defense argued that whether Koberger goes to trial now or later, this issue is still going to come up. We believe this to be an important issue and one that is worth getting a glance, at least from a higher court, uh, rather than being tucked away and forgotten in the maelstrom that is to come. Uh, as the state undoubtedly knows, trial won't put an end to this case. This case will go on for 28 years if they do actually achieve a conviction. So. The idea that somehow we're running towards something uh, and that that's going to do anybody uh, any good from their standpoint is, I think, false. What we're trying to do is make sure that the things that occur in this case are done correctly. And if you want to talk about how long things are going to take, get some stuff wrong and then see how long it all takes. We're asking that the court would give us permission to go and see if the Idaho Supreme Court would be willing to weigh in on this. Wow, is is that a stalling tactic or what? They want to present it to the Idaho Supreme Court before this judge has even made his rulings. I, I think that's uh, that's insulting to this judge, you know. And because this is a death penalty case, it's like they got they went into a four corner offense, like the old Dean Smith in North Carolina, where they just stole. They're just stalling. They're stalling for time. I think even the fact that uh and taylor was asking for this case not to start until june 2025 is is a little bit much and i think that uh, the judge should probably uh get this case moving along that 20 giving till 2025 i think is a bit much you know uh 
Uh, Roseanne, what if, what if the evidence does not add up and he is acquitted? He spent several years in jail. Again, I'm waiting for the trial, just looking at all sides, those poor families. Well, I, I think that Roseanne, to answer that, I think the evidence is very strong because you, you see there was not even a request for bail in this case, was there? So could he, could he still beat this case after a trial? Yeah, absolutely, but that's that's our system. He's not going to get out because he's probably a danger to himself, to the community, and he's he's alleged to have killed four innocent students. So that's that's our system. And and if he if he's in for three years or four years or whatever, and he beats the case. You know, then, yeah, he served three or four years and, you know, and maybe, you know, I, I don't believe he's innocent. I don't know who who believes in our chat, believes that Brian Koberg is innocent. I'm sure there are people, but I, I have, I don't have to believe it, but that is our system. And um, he's not going to be, uh, he's not going to be bailed, which is also an indication that the state has an extremely, extremely strong case. So, folks, that's about that's our show for this evening. I just wanted to go over, you know, the hearing today. The fact, uh, the most important things, of course, is the investigative genetic genealogy. Uh, also, the, uh, the request for a change of venue, and then, of course, the scheduling that, that you want to put this case off until June 2025. And then you just heard an attorney just now requesting a legal issue here that go to the Idaho State Supreme Court. Like, talk about stalling. I th- I mean, that's a stall. And for the person that asks, well, what if he's in jail and he beats the case? His attorney's doing the stall right now, right? And I think Judge John Judge will refuse to uh, send this to a higher court because he is the judge on this case and he will ultimately decide. So, folks, you just listen to Police Off the Cuff. I'm Bill Cannon. Have a great night, everyone, and God bless.